Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Off-season episode 95. Holy Krapinski. We had 100 a week from today. That's wild. Off-season 100. Off-season 100. I'm not going to celebrate it. Or am I? No, I'm actually not going to. Other than to just announce proudly at the beginning of the show that we did 100 off-season episodes. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today, everybody. I am Dan Baspris. It's your Friday weekend edition. It's betting week on Fantasy NBA Today. We got team win totals all week long. We got the Central Division coming up on today's show. We'll finish out our betting tour de force on Monday with the Atlantic. And then we'll pivot back into fantasy stuff of some kind on Tuesday. And we're hoping that Yahoo will have their ADP data out by Wednesday. That'll obviously make our lives a whole lot easier because we got a lot to do once that information starts flowing in. We'll get mock drafts going shortly thereafter. We'll do our industry mock. That'll be in September. Talk to all of those folks. Get their sleepers on the show. That's a that's a fun one. We for those that are not uh, or are around here for your first three hour tour on Fantasy NBA Today. Leading up to the season, I like to host a an industry mock nine cat roto typically twelve industry pros. I don't participate in it. I just host it. Why? Because it this way I can get one more person in it. I don't need myself. You guys listen to me talk all the time. You don't need to analyze my own mock draft team. I'll be doing plenty of mocks on my own. We can talk about on this show. The fun of the industry mock is you get 12 analysts from different sites all the way across the fantasy NBA landscape, and then they come on the show one by one, and I pray I can carve out the the requisite time to get this thing done. My schedule is such a, a cluster mess these days, but I'm going to do my damn best. And they get to break down their team. We talk through some of their players, and they give someone they were targeting, whether or not they got them. That's kind of like a, hey, who's a, who's a potential sleeper you can give out on the podcast? So it's a really cool way for them to, for you to get to know some new uh, analysts on the show, opportunity for them to kind of flex their muscle a little bit, and we'll give you some good info in the process. That'll be coming up uh, probably mid-September to early October, based on previous timelines. I'm getting ahead of myself, I guess. It's only August 19th, but still, that's not that far away now. All right, so we're talking season win totals, and if you've heard any show this week, you know what we're up to. I don't know that I need to go back and explain the whole thing, but we're going to start with the team with the highest win total in the Central Division and work our way down the board with thoughts on why the number is where it is and what we'd like to do with it. Easy enough. I also have a little extra stuff. Our buddy Mike Fiddle here at Sports Ethos, host of the Advantage Pod, has three. Uh, one of them actually happens to correspond nicely. Two, sorry, two of his three points correspond. Two of them are on uh, Central Division teams, and I'll give you those at the end of the show. And apologies once again to Mike. I, I intended to actually have him on when we were talking through some of this betting stuff, but I'm an idiot. I forgot, and then also my schedule is nuts. But Mike was kind enough to type up some uh, sharp betting analysis, some line movement analysis, and we can give you that towards the end of the show. 
Team with the highest win total in the Central Division is not surprisingly the Milwaukee Bucks. There's no one anywhere close to them in numbers. And the Bucks are at 52.5, which I think might be one of the most accurate numbers on the board this year. Not what you guys wanted to hear, I know. But the Bucks had 51 wins last season. This basically is saying, could Milwaukee just sort of luck their way into two more wins? The answer is maybe. I'm going to go under 52.5, basically on the notion that the Bucks are going to play their guys about the same number of games this season that they did last year. Might win a couple close ones and end up going over the mark. Might lose a couple close ones, end up staying under the mark. I just think that, and look, this is by design. Games played numbers for the three stars on the Bucks. Giannis was 67. Drew Holiday was 67. Chris Middleton was 66. That's their target. What's the expression? That's not a bug, it's a feature. That's a feature. They won a title in the 72-game season. They, yeah, I mean, certainly you could make the argument that this last year championship hangover might have played a role in not putting the gas pedal down. But I don't think that not winning the title really changes the way the Bucks feel about the regular season. They, remember, uh, you know, they lost to the Celtics in a very good series, but they had a chance to close it out on their own court. So looking back at this, I don't know that the Bucks looked at this year and thought, oh, well, we badly needed home court advantage. That's why we lost. I think they look at this last year and say, we needed Chris Middleton. We were missing one of our three key guys. And frankly, the fact that they pushed, they could have beaten the Celtics in six or seven and lost them both was just an indicator of how freaking good Giannis is that the Bucks could almost get over the team that ended up coming out of the East then without, I don't know, do you want to say Drew's their second best player or Middleton? Whatever, like 2A and 2B. One of their second best players. Could the Celtics have beaten the Bucks without Jalen Brown? I doubt it. I know Boston had players, Robert Williams missed games here and there, Marcus Smart missed some games here and there, but it really wasn't the same now, I'm not taking anything away from the Celtics. They beat them. The point of all of this is that the Bucks. I don't think they looked back and felt like they did something wrong during the regular season this last year. I think they were perfectly fine with their regular season. They just wanted Middleton healthy for the playoffs. I get it. He wasn't, despite the fact that they didn't push their stars. But that's called a small sample size, ladies and gentlemen. If you play a player... 82 games out of 82 games, there is a higher probability of them getting hurt in a basketball game than if they only play 68 games. It's not always going to work out that way. The 14 games you sat them might not make a difference at all. But odds are, or you know what, we shouldn't even phrase it that way because that makes it sound like it's better than a 50-50 proposition. If you think that a player is going to get hurt 100% of the time, if they play all 82 games, and if you think that player has like an 85% chance of getting hurt if they only play 68 games, but you still make the playoffs and still have a pretty good seed, you probably go with the 68-game scenario. What if it was a bigger thing? What if you said, okay, a player plays 80, all 82 games, 
there's like a 90 some odd percent chance they get hurt. But if they take off three weeks scattered throughout the season, they only get hurt 50% of the time. And again, you still have a upper crust seed for your playoff battle. And you can do this with all three of your superstars. Wouldn't you do it? To suddenly now have a 50-50 shot of, of the, this particular player, hypothetical player, I made this, a, this is not a real thing, totally made up numbers, but if you were management there, wouldn't you say, yeah, I mean, I'll take the scenario where I got a better chance of getting my guys into the playoffs healthy. And just because it didn't happen last year doesn't mean that it was the wrong choice. I hear this, uh, I mean, sports talk radio is so guilty of this stuff, and it, it happens, I think, more with football than with basketball, where football, they're just finally starting to treat math as a little more in their decision-making. When do teams go for it and fourth down? When you kick a field goal versus going for it when you try for the... Things like that where, you know, maybe it doesn't work one time, but over forever, it's something with a positive ROI. Just the way that this phenomenon that we've seen in the NBA, thank you Kawhi Leonard, teams feel like this is a positive ROI. They've got a better shot of getting their guys into the playoffs healthy. And if you have the luxury of being able to say, we're still going to be a top four seed even if we rest our guys for three weeks during the regular season, you're going to do it. And if someone was like, well, if you don't rest them, then maybe you get the number one seed and you have a slightly easier path to the finals. I don't know if that team cares all that much. Of course, they might just win a few extra games because Brooke Lopez will be healthy this year and then it could still go over. But I just don't think they're going to do anything different. So I'll just assume the results are basically the same. Chicago, 43 and a half. This is a weird one. And uh, first of all, I'll, I'll bring in the, the note from Mike Fiddle that Alex Caruso actually has a weirdly low price. Low meaning not good here, meaning it's already been squeezed. Uh... At Defensive Player of the Year, 60-1 to 1 is the number. Now, is Mike saying you should bet that? The answer is a firm no. A firm no. But I actually disagree with Mike in a couple of spots here because he believes, and, and we're, we'll probably end up button heads on this one, Mike states that the Bulls, that number's gone from 43.5, that was the opening number, up to 44.5. Uh, because folks feel like it was just a little bit too low. I'm actually on the other side of this one. I think that the Bulls' number is lower because there's an, there's an expectation of a regression from a number of angles over last year. Now, there are a few ways that that gets wiped out. If Pat Williams gets much better, regressions from some of the main guys gets wiped out. If Lonzo Ball is actually healthy this season, some of this stuff gets wiped out. But I'm looking at a Bulls team... And this is why I'm I'm kind of I'm not anti Bulls this year, but I'm not super thrilled about them. They won 46 games last season. Chicago did, uh, but they were quite bad late in the year. The Bulls and the Cavs, who we're going to talk about next, each got off to good starts last season, and then each team faded as the year went on because there were a bunch of things happening on those clubs that were not sustainable. And that's my fear with Chicago this year, because the reason the Bulls won a bunch of games early in the season is that DeMar DeRozan was going bananas. Because Vooch wasn't that great last year, and maybe he plays a little bit better this season. But he was healthy 
So at least there was that. And DeMar was incredible. 28 points per game. He shot 50% from the field, 88% at the free throw line. He was actually higher than that early in the season. Remember when on that Michael Jordan-esque run of over 50% and over whatever it was, 27 or 30 points per game for like 12 games in a row? He was carrying them, and they were winning games that they probably shouldn't because they still weren't very good on the other side of the ball. They didn't defend very well. Alex Crusoe, who we just talked about, he could play a role in that, so maybe that covers some of the gap. But Lonzo, only 35 games. Bulls are really good, the 35 games Lonzo was out there. How many games is he going to play this year? We're, there's a lot of worry around him going into the season. Right now, I lean to the under on Chicago. I might change my tune if we find out that Lonzo Ball is healthy coming into the season because in my estimation, as good as Alex Caruso can be, and he's an excellent defender, he's versatile, he can handle a lot of spots, they need Lonzo Ball. He was the thing, keeping it all together early in the year, distributing, running the fast break, defense, very good defensively. Because otherwise, I see DeMar DeRozan having a step back this year. I see Vooch probably missing a few extra games this season. I think Zach Levine pretty much replicates what he did last year. So to me, the Bulls kind of come down to Lonzo Ball. And I'm genuinely worried about him. Because right now, if Lonzo only plays in half the season again, which, and maybe that, you know, that's a number that could get higher. But if he plays in half the season and DeRozan and Vooch take any kind of health step back, then they definitely go under this total. If Lonzo gets into about 60 ball games, that's how Chicago goes over. So you're basically betting on Lonzo's knee right now, and for that reason, I probably don't touch this one until a bit later, but with the data we have at this moment, I would look at the under. I hope Lonzo's healthy. If we find out he's healthy, I probably wipe this one off the board. This is another one of those ones where... You know, we're doing it August 19th. There's not enough information available to us. Mike likes the Bulls a lot, and I can understand why. It's a really low number for a team that was at 46 wins last year with, again, Lonzo missing more than half this season. But I, to me, I think you need to expect him to be there or expect a big Pat Williams jump. Otherwise, I don't know that the Bulls can get over that mark. So, Mike, you and I are going to fight this one out, maybe. If Lonzo Ball is healthy on opening day, then we'll probably just shake hands, kiss, and make up. <laughs> uh, next team on the thing. Um, Cleveland Cavaliers, and Mike's note on this is that the win total came in really low and looks fishy to him. Uh, Cavs opened at 42.5, so that's what I'm going to grade them at. I've been doing all of these things on their opening line. I like the under, and guess what? Mike likes the under, too. So, we are in strong agreement on this one. For Mike, it was about fading Darius Garland. For me, it's about fading the team as a whole. Because I thought the Cavs were kind of gimmicky last year. They, like the Bulls, started fast and crapped out down the stretch. And I think both teams have issues that haven't really been solved this offseason. For the Bulls, the issue is they need Lonzo back in there. That's a, that's a different monster altogether. They didn't need to make wholesale changes of any kind. Cavs don't really need to make wholesale changes, but they have to make something. 
I don't know that Karis LeVert was the right fit. Ricky Rubio was the right fit, but he blew out his knee, and he'll maybe be back halfway through the season. Colin Sexton remains unsigned as another possible scoring option on that Cavs team. And then remember, this is a club in Cleveland, by the way, I also am leaning under, as I mentioned, that ran giant lineups last year and kind of got away with it because Jared Allen was so awesome at protecting the rim and Evan Mobley has been so awesome at guarding anything, basically. But it's gimmicky. Gimmicky things in the NBA tend to work for about half a regular season. And then teams catch on. And yes, injuries played a very large role for the Cavaliers. When they had Ricky Rubio and they could stagger Rubio and Garland, move Darius off ball for stretches, utilize him more as a scorer, that made them a much more consistent force on offense, whereas later in the year it had to be Garland every time. So he was initiating almost every single play. Lavert, I don't, you know, I don't think he's ever going to really be 100% healthy. That's just that's just it at this point. Um and so the Cavs didn't have the weapons that they wanted and then you know Kevin Love was the only Cavalier who played more than 70 games last season. So I guess to that end you could argue that superior health might help Cleveland. But I look at this team and I just see a whole bunch of kind of weird pieces that somehow worked for like the first half of a year, but Markinen, Mobley, and Love, and Allen, these like four giant dudes that were almost always sharing the court two or three at a time, that's just, that's just not going to work. And here's the thing. Okay. Let's say, you know, Garland played league average number of games. Mobley played league average, maybe plus two number of games. Jared Allen was hurt. Let's say Jared Allen plays an extra dozen games this year. Yeah, that's helpful. Kevin Love probably doesn't play 74 again this season. I don't know what Evan Mobley's going to get to. He played 69. That seems like a pretty reasonable target, so on and so forth. Larry Markkinen, 61. He missed a bunch of time. He's been hurt throughout his career so far, so I don't know. We'll say, let's just make our lives harder in this argument and say, let's say he does play like another six or seven ball games. So, like, let's just say health generally is better for Cleveland. I think that gets all, more than wiped out by the fact that the bad teams in the East are not going to be as easy to beat. I might even argue that some of the good teams in the East got tougher to beat. I don't know what you can say about the Nets, but the Hawks got better. They were already fine. Sixers got better. Hornets probably got a little worse. Knicks got better. Wizards got better. Pistons got better. Magic got better. Pacers are going to get worse. Most teams in the East either stayed the same or got better, and like two got worse. And for the Cavs, they stayed the same. Staying the same isn't enough when most of the boats around you are moving faster. So I expect the Cavs to take a couple wins step back. They'll be right around a 500 ball club this year if it, things go well for them. Uh, I actually have them closer to 40-ish wins, so I think they stay under, and it's one that I kind of like a little bit. I know we've gone through a few divisions where I haven't been all that thrilled with any of the wagers on the board. Cavs under is one that I do kind of like. So, Mike, all right, we're back on good ground together here. Shuffling along, the Detroit Pistons. 28 and a half is the number. And I feel like I'm 
being suckered here a little bit, but I'm going to go under on Detroit, uh, which feels like very much the public direction to go on this one. And I, maybe I get it totally wrong. I just, I feel like Detroit is one more tank away from being where they want to be in terms of this rebuild. Now, again, I, I, I could be wrong. Guessing what team is going to tank before the season starts is an educated guess, but it's still a guess. Still, when you look at what the Pistons have cooking, as you know, you look towards the future, they have a bunch of middle-sized contracts that will likely come off the books after this season. Like Alec Burks has a team option for next year that who knows if they'll exercise. Nerlens Noel has team options. And then different young guys, which they'll probably retain, but like Corey Joseph would be off the books. I think they're still paying some money to Kemba Walker and DeAndre Jordan from contracts way back in the day. I don't know if those are... Did they pay those down? I don't know. Regardless... Pistons have almost nothing outside of young players on the books after this year, and then they legitimately have only young guys on the books after next year. So when I look at something like that, and I look at a team like what the Pistons are built for right now, they, you know, they gave Marvin Bagley a three-year deal, pretty affordable for the most part. They've got Cade in his second season, Burks, Noel. I mean, these guys are, are veterans, but they're not, I mean, these are not the guys that are going to put a young team over the top. Yes, they're there, but it seemed like they kind of ended up there as a result of trades, not as a result of uh, you know targeted acquisitions. So instead, you know, young guys, Killian Hayes, Jaden Ivey, Jalen Duran, Isaiah Stewart, Cade Cunningham, Sadiq Bey, lots of lots and lots of young players who we saw what they were last year. They were a 23-win team. And again, while I might be completely off base, I just feel like the additions they've had, while decent through the draft, some good stuff going Detroit's way, and Cade will have his growth. I don't see the guys on this team that are ready to win competitive basketball games. And it'd be one thing if a bunch of teams in the East were turning into the tank. But I think the Magic, we talked about this yesterday, are going to be better. They're going to tank less. The Wizards, Knicks, Hornets, Cavs, Hawks, Nets, Bulls, whatever. Like, all of those teams are going to be fighting for play-in spots. And you've really only got gimmies, I guess, against the Pacers in your conference. It's funny here because the West, while I think probably generally better as a whole, likely has more teams trying to lose this coming season. So from that standpoint, you might have a greater number of gimmies if you're in the Western Conference, then the rest of your games are harder, but hey, catch my meaning here. So for the Pistons to, to look at six additional wins when it seems like it's in their best interest to just lose hard for one more year, tank one more time, don't worry about putting it all together yet. Why? Like, what's the point of trying for 30 wins? That still made you, that would make you the 13th seed in the East this last year, still nowhere near a play-in tournament spot, which, you know, 43-win team was the last one in. Hawks and Hornets were tied. It's not close. 
What's the point? What's the point of being like fifth or sixth from the bottom? You just wipe out some of your lotto ball odds and you're still terrible. So I think the Pistons still try to lose. I don't think that they've got the thing that they wanted. And I know it's weird to say that because the Magic were worse than the Pistons by a game last year. But I feel like Orlando, you know, I think about Jonathan Isaac hanging out in the wings. They've got, they sort of have more or had more, I guess I should say, and then added the number one. Whereas with Detroit, I don't know. That just, it doesn't feel like they're quite there. Like with the Magic, you could argue Fultz coming back. It's like getting a, a lottery pick back already a few years into his career. If Isaac actually exists, they've got Wendell Carter Jr., who's a little bit older. Not old, old, but they're just built better to go try to win a couple more games. And it feels almost disingenuous to try to get the number one pick two years in a row. Pistons didn't get the number one pick. In fact, they kind of got screwed a little bit on the, the lotto balls. So why not go try it one more time? And even though, like I've said, I think the worst teams in the NBA are a tiny bit better this year, more like 23, 24, even 25 wins as opposed to 22 or 23. That's still not 29. Now the Pacers, on the other hand, talked about them a bunch over the course of this week as sort of the butt of a few jokes. I think they are no longer hosting Buddy Heald and Miles Turner by the time this season starts. Now, if they are, then maybe that throws a little bit of a wrench into things. But the Pacers, to me, look like your prime Tanko team. I think they probably finished this year with the worst record in the NBA. You're talking about like 21, 22 wins. And this is one of those ones where as low as their number is at 24 and a half, I think it can't get low enough. Because if they do trade Miles Turner and Buddy Heald, it becomes very obvious that they're trying to lose games. At that point, they probably don't play Tyrese Halliburton all 82 games. You start to get more like a mid to high 60s run for their prized youngster on a team, on a year that they're throwing away. And it just, I don't know, it kind of feels like Houston. Like the Rockets got a little bit of a pass on their first loser year because Harden demanded a trade. And then they got to do the real tank the year after that, this last one. And they've ended up with two really nice early picks. But it only really felt like they tried to lose one of those two seasons. And the other one, it was kind of foisted upon them. And I think the Pacers are kind of that same thing. Like, they weren't going into last year trying to lose, but they ended up bad. They ended up bad. They couldn't win close ball games. They were much better than their terrible record would indicate the first half of the season. They had, I think I was looking at some of the Pythagorean numbers on Indiana, and it was like, oh, they just, they lost every game, and they were all losses by, like, five points. Okay, fine. And then at that point, like, look, we're not going to win any of these games. We're bad. Now we might as well just tank the rest of the way. And they ended up with a relatively high draft pick. I don't think that's going to be a game changer for them. But now it, it became an opportunity. It turned into an opportunity to go get young. They got rid of Demonis Sabonis. They'll probably get rid of Miles and Buddy. And then you're talking just no veterans left. None. I'm, I'm sure I could pull up their roster and find like someone that's been in the league for more than three years. But at that point, you are saying this is our this is our forced loss year. Last year, we didn't mean to, but we were terrible. This year, we mean to be awful. Let's go get Victor Wembanyama. Let's see if we can change our fortunes for the next 10 years. We've already got Halliburton. We've got some other young guys that we like a little bit. But, I mean, Halliburton's the, the main one. 
they're going to get a whole bunch of salary cap relief going into next season. Get cheap, get young, start building, lose, lose, lose. I think the Pacers win 22 games this year after trading away their last bastions of hope. It's going to be a tough year for Halliburton, who I do like a lot, but I don't think there's any way he plays you know, mid to high 70s in games once they go into the full tank. Oh, TJ McConnell, there's your, there's your veteran pacer. But, like, thinking about some of the young guys, Benedict Matherin, who they just drafted, they're happy about him. Obviously, Halliburton, Chris Duarte they like, Isaiah Jackson they like, Jalen Smith, who's a tiny bit older, but they still like him a little bit. Still, you know, those are guys that you put them together. They're not winning, they're not winning basketball games. Halliburton can't do it himself, and those other guys are not good enough. Pacers under. Kind of like that one. I hate betting an under on a team with the number that low, but one of the other reasons if you were going to do it is that if they make a trade, that number probably does drop to 23.5 or even 22.5. Oof, that would be a low one. But if they unload Miles Turner and Buddy Heald, that number goes down again. So I think the Central kind of stinks this year. I have the under on all five Central Division teams. Likely, not all five of those will be right. But it just feels like a division where the Bucks stayed the same, the Bulls stayed the same, the Cavs kind of stayed the same, due for regressions, some of those clubs. Pistons got a little bit better, but should still tank, and then the Pacers are going to get so much worse. Have a lovely weekend, everybody. A lovely weekend. Hey, we got an NFL listener league. I know you guys are NBA listeners, but we got an NFL listener league um, reach out if you want to be a part of that at Dan Bespris on Twitter. Also, if you'd like to cover a team for us here at Sports Ethos, if you are a DFS writer, we got spots. They're now, they're open now. Hit me. D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Once again on Twitter. Sportsethos.com is the website. Ethos Fantasy BK is the basketball feed. Easier to just find me. I'll point you in all those directions. Once again, Dan Besbris, thank you for listening, everybody. Monday, we'll wrap up our win totals six show adventure and then back into fantasy after that. I know many of you are sick and tired of this already. You only have to deal with one. Enjoy your weekend. Talk to you Monday. Monday.